Hi, this is Kelsey Landers, Economic Justice Vista at the Sargent Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I want to welcome you to The Witness. podcast where we bring you first-hand stories from attorneys and advocates who are on the front lines of fighting for justice for people living in poverty. The Witness is a project of the Shriver Center's Clearinghouse community. Today's episode is the second in an ongoing mini-series about the Tennessee Alliance for Legal Services. Founded in 1977, TALS is a statewide coordinator for civil legal aid programs in Tennessee. During its 40th anniversary celebration at its Equal Justice University event, we got to talk with some of the lawyers and advocates who came together from across the state. We learned about their lives, their careers, and their hopes for the future of legal aid in Tennessee. Our first episode dove into some interesting client stories, and today we talk with three lawyers about how they started their careers in legal aid. Our first story features William Bush and Harrison D. McIver III. Bill Bush is the Employment Practice Lead at the Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands. Harrison McIver is the Executive Director of Memphis Area Legal Services. They both recount how growing up in the 1960s shaped their outlook on life and led them to the legal aid field. You know, I was curious, what what led you to uh, go to law school, or what? Uh, why did you choose to go to law school? What in your upbringing, or what impacted your life, such that you made a decision to go to law school, and then once out of law school to make a career of uh, serving low-income people and fighting for justice for poor people? Well, um, I, I guess um, it's what I. Always uh, was was seeking. I think was um, for there to be rules, and I, and I don't know, uh, you know, what what in my upbringing or psychological makeup makes me want that so much. But you know, I I, I really feel like it's important for there to be a level playing field for everyone, mm-hmm. and uh, and rules that you know so everyone knows where they stand and. Uh, um, you know, if there is, uh, and also I was, grew up during a period in the, uh, you know, 60s and uh, my formative years where the, the lawyers and, and the law were being used to really improve the, the world mm-hmm. and uh, uh, improve the, the, you know, the, the disadvantaged and, and um, you know, their, um, you know, ability to, uh, Get due process and the things that they needed, and mm-hmm. and so um, I guess uh, I was inspired by people like um, um, oh the uh, uh, Raider uh, Nader Nader oh <laughs> Nader. <laughs> Rap Nader. Uh, Nader's Raiders okay uh, people like that uh, who were really uh, you know seemingly having a, an effect on uh, improving. The world, improving 
safety and, and other consumer rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and then uh, it turns out I I grew up a lot in, in Washington, D.C. My, my parents were in the, mil- dad was in the military. And uh, so I was exposed to um, lawmaking in the Congress and the Supreme Court and sort of inspiring things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess it all added up. And, uh, how about you? Well, <clears throat> there was some overlap in terms of period. Uh, I was born in the 50s, and my formative years would, be, would have been in the 60s, if you would. Um, I grew up when segregation was legal, if you will. And I uh, experienced as a young person, but I was always very astute and probably, I would always say, very mature for my age because, and my father had a great impact on how I kind of looked at the world. And in growing up in South Georgia, in Bainbridge, Georgia, in segregated schools, segregated communities, um, I recall um, as five and six watching Walter Cronkite and Everett Severide. I mean, I'm watching the news with my father at that age, and I always waited, you know, if there were news people who were my heroes, it would have been those two. And the sort of the, when Severide would do that commentary at the end, he always seemed to put things in perspective and take something from there. Also living in Georgia, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, especially the Atlanta Constitution, Ralph McGill was the editor and on the Sunday paper he would write an editorial piece and that's when I you know learned to read and that was a sort of mainstay for me to do and I um, and that was Atlanta Constitution was a progressive newspaper during those times and when we had such uh, upheaval during the 60s and um, the 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 um, uh, marches and, and things it never came actually to Bainbridge but right over in Albany and in uh, Atlanta and Macon and Augusta and those things were happening uh, I was a very student and very student of what was going on and uh, when I go back to Ralph McGill he would write articles and talk about how the South should change um, I also as a young child at six years old, I was uh, working in my uncle's barbershop shining shoes. I shined shoes for about 10 years and so I saw a lot and listened a lot and the barbershops used to be different than they are uh, today. I mean fathers would bring the kids in and mothers would bring the kids in but it was a sort of a male dominant place and as a small child hearing and listening to what was going on and my dad was sort of involved in kind of the political arena then would opt for the better candidate and he would work on that person's behalf. But it and and also my my time working uh during that time African American kids I, I sold peanuts and worked and shine shoes, but during the summers uh I worked in the tobacco fields of Georgia and that was by election when uh black kids would go and work on these plantations yet there were people who were tied to those plantations who actually uh, received their living. I mean, I was paid three, six dollars a day to work from six to six, so 
I knew that wasn't going to be my life, and I had a mother who was both parents and grandmother college educated. Uh, and so we went there because we didn't have alternatives, and it's also a social place to go because that's where all the black kids went. And you didn't have anybody to play with if you stayed home. So all of that sort of uh, came to create a certain sense of who I was and who I would become. My dad espoused, you know, I saw how uh, Dr. King and all the things that were happening and, and in terms of people trying to achieve social and economic justice, and it affected me when I was, at, like for instance, at the, uh, being working on the tobacco fields, you saw where, you know, I'm working a whole day for three dollars or six dollars at some point. I finally got to about seven or eight when I was hanging tobacco in the bonds. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's just things just didn't seem fair, and I was um, determined that at one time I wanted to be a doctor. But as I grew and went, I went to Morehouse College where there was a imprint of Dr. King. Uh, where he went to school, Benjamin Mays, uh, Julian Bond. So I saw, uh, well, I, when I got to college, Dr. King was dead, but all these other folks I would see. Um, and it, and I remember the first Democratic the, con the convention where it was open, Democratic convention, I think it was in maybe, I can't remember Chicago or where, but we had students to go to those that convention. So saying all that to say that um, I knew when I went to college and I knew when I went to law school that I wanted to have a, do a social justice approach. And as the two of us, we were Reggie's <laughs> and Reginald Haber Smith fellows and those, you know, we were selected because of our applying and our wanting to be involved in social justice. most effective advocates are the ones who have been directly touched by the issues they are fighting for. Christina McGrans Tillery is a staff attorney at Legal Aid of East Tennessee. She began working with the organization in 2014 as a benefits attorney in the Johnson City office. In 2015, she moved to the Knoxville office to focus on housing issues. She tells Tony Seaton, a private attorney who serves on the Tennessee Access to Justice Commission, about how her own story guided her career. Um, one of the reasons why, I, I don't know if you know this actually about me, but one of the reasons why I got into Access to Justice and, and towards legal aid was because years ago I almost lost my life in my housing to domestic violence. And so I knew I wanted to be part of an advocacy group or some kind of change in the law. I wanted to see things happen so that women didn't lose their housing over the actions mm -hmm. of their abusers. And um, this case that I had actually with legal aid, it was maybe, um, maybe a few years ago, I can't remember exactly. But I remember this woman said that she had gone over to a friend's house, at least she thought it was a friend. She brought her newborn baby with her and she showed up and the friend had her abuser there hoping they would reconcile, if you can believe it. She knew about mm -hmm. the issues with the abuser but still invited him over. So obviously reconciliation didn't occur. Um, he wrapped his hand into her hair and tried to snap her neck while she had the baby in her arms. She fled and um, in the amount of time it took for her to get back to her house, he had called the police and said that she had assaulted him. 
And of course, what I got was the eviction notice and then the, the criminal, you know, whatever warrant that was for the assault. And she looked terrible on paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course you can evict someone for causing a threat to someone else. And I'll never forget talking with her on the phone. And she just said, I know what this looks like. I'm moving my stuff into storage. And with my newborn baby, I will go live in this storage unit for as long as I can if that's what I have to do. And I remember thinking, you know, not only did that break my heart, but I remember thinking, wow, you know, I was this close to being in that exact same situation. So I said, you know what, I'm not sure what I'll be able to do, but I'm going to try my hardest to figure out what we can do to help save your housing. And, you know, we worked on it with um, a couple of other attorneys, and we were able to get the eviction completely rescinded. I will never forget that phone call to her because she thought she was going to be living in a dusty old storage unit with really just a concrete floor, no electricity, no water, with a newborn baby that she was still nursing. And I told her, you know, your housing is fine. Move your stuff back in. And she, she cried on the phone. And she just said, you have changed everything for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that when I went through that, how much I had wished that there was someone there that could help me with that type of an issue. And, you know, I didn't reach out for the help, but, but she did. And I just remember thinking how rewarding it was to be that person, finally. Oh, and, yeah. and I got so much, you know, personal closure. And just every day that I have a bad day, I remember her. And I just think about what she said. Coming up next on The Witness. It seems to me, I don't know really how it is in all of the West Tennessee programs, but um, a lot of folks are practicing law or being in legal aid offices who really just move to the area. And that's not you exactly. No, sir. Talk about that a little bit. How is it to be a hometown girl sort of who's doing I was born and raised in the uh, community that I serve. Once again, this has been Kelsey Landers from the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law. This episode was recorded by Amanda Moore, director of the Clearinghouse Community at the Schreiber Center, and produced by Jesse Dixon, the training and engagement vista at the Schreiber Center. We'd like to extend a special thanks to TALS for sharing their stories and allowing us to record at the Equal Justice University. We hope you'll continue joining us for The Witness. We would also like to invite you to join us for the Advocacy Exchange, our monthly conversations with advocates advancing change. Those are hosted live through YouTube each month, but you can also get the audio version as a podcast. You can learn more about the Advocacy Exchange and the Clearinghouse community by going to povertylaw.org forward slash clearinghouse. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.